Thanks for joining us in our series on the book of Ephesians. In this letter, we get a thorough view of God's cosmic plan of reconciliation and reunification in Jesus Christ. Its truths are vital to the Christian's understanding of personhood and the church. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in Him. Good morning, everybody. Let's turn to the book of Ephesians together. It is an interesting and difficult week as um, we have lost Amy Caldwell. Um, some of you may know her as Amy Mock, uh, a former member at Cornerstone. Um, we are sorrowful yet rejoicing, knowing that our Lord is taking care of her uh, as she has trusted and loved Him. Uh, we're also sad, of course, to be apart from one another this morning, um, but we are happy also to worship in spirit and in truth, even if together uh, means it's through a, a broadcast recording. We can assure you that uh, we are thinking of and praying for you. It's strange maybe for us, um, but there are many Christians across the world and throughout history who have congregated to read Scripture and pray together with really only their families or a few believers around them. And as I preach to nearly an empty room here, I guess uh, Joni Mitchell was right. Um, don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you got till it's gone? Um, but we haven't really lost anything. Uh, we know that. Um, it's not gone. Uh, you know, we look forward to being united again for worship in a short time, hopefully in a few weeks here. Um, but in a much bigger and more important way, we recognize that we have a sure hope in Christ our King. We will unite together under Him all things in heaven and on earth. And so we have a great hope in our Savior. For now, let's go ahead and look at uh, the first two verses in chapter 1, and then we'll pray. Ephesians 1, 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise you for all that you are. We say with the Lord himself, holy is your name. We thank you for the great care and love for us in the midst of unrest and potential danger. Although we join our state in taking steps to control the spread of this virus, we know that the truth is we cannot control anything. We look to you and we ask that you would protect your people and that you would be merciful to our neighbors who do not know you. We also pray for the family and friends of Amy Caldwell. Uh, would you bring them comfort in you? Would you give them faith, and would you calm their fears and anxieties? Lord, you have chosen to take Amy to be with you, and we do not understand all of your ways. Sometimes they, they just don't make sense to us, but we trust you and ask that you'd help Jeff and the kids and the rest of the family as they work through this grieving process. Give us faith this morning, or this afternoon, or wherever we, we encourage each other with this truth, but give us faith as we look to your word. Would you give us our daily bread? Would you feed us, Lord Jesus? We know that you are all that we need, so deliver on your promises this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. When we think of a good detective, perhaps maybe a fictional one like uh, Sherlock Holmes or maybe Hercule Poirot, 
I had to practice that like 20 times to even get close to saying it right. Um, but when we think of a good detective, we think of a good person who is able, not a good person, but a person who is able to be good at looking at complex situations and making sense of it, to work through them and to understand the answers and hopefully be able to come up with some sort of a solution to the problem. Often, we learn that the best detectives are not necessarily ultra-intuitive or psychics, although some might think that they are supposed to be, uh, but rather they are keen observers of the details. They can take all of the information, observe all the details, and gain clarity that may not be so apparent to the rest of us. Uh, and there are plenty of twisted and complex and nigh unto impossible detective stories that we all shake our heads at the end and be like, man, I never would have gotten that in a million years. I wouldn't have figured it out. But then there are those ones that are maddening because eventually we realize by the end that the answer has been right in front of us the entire time. We're like, oh, I should have been able to get this one. It wasn't way down deep in the details of all these secondary characters, but rather it was right in front of us the whole time. Oftentimes we don't see these things because they've become so familiar to us that we kind of take them for granted and we can't quite see their significance. I mean, yeah, they're there, but so what? This is the reason that we are starting with just these first two verses this morning. If we're not careful, we can make the same mistake that we just talked about. Today we're looking at the typical Pauline greeting, these first two verses, an opening statement of his letter to the Ephesians, and like so many of his letters, he starts off the same way. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He uses this in other places, 2 Corinthians 1.1, Colossians 1.1, 2 Timothy 1.1, these exact same words to open it up. I mean, come on, Paul, can you, can you be a little more creative here? He starts off in a very typical opening that communicates three main things in these two verses. First, he identifies himself as the sender, Paul the Apostle. Second, he identifies his recipients, the Ephesians, or as we said before, the Ephesians and the other churches that will get this letter. And then third, he offers a Christian greeting, a kind of a prayer wish for them of grace and peace. These three ideas provide us a simple structure for us as we look through this greeting and understanding Paul's intentions as he begins these opening words. So first, let's look at the sender together. Paul, formerly Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor of the church. This is a pretty bad dude, to say the least. And when I say bad, I mean he was a huge pain for the church as it grew out of Jerusalem. Paul was a Jew of all Jews, we know this from Philippians 3, if you remember. Let me read verses 4 through 6. He says this, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, I, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness under the law, blameless. I mean, Paul was a serious Jew, excellent at what he was doing, a very good student of the law. He knew the Pentateuch well. He was a consistent doer of the word, and the truth is he was very natural at application. He knew what to do with this truth to, point, to the point that he was willing to kill those who would adulterate his understanding of God, 
with their new fangled ideas of, about the Messiah who died on a cross. <laughs> Ridiculous. No way. This was an affront to Paul and to his God, or so he thought. It was blasphemous. It was treason. And it did not fit his natural understanding of what God was doing in the world until one day. Acts 9, 1 through 22. I'm going to read the whole story for us because I think it's that helpful. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for the letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who are traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus Christ, Jesus was the Christ. Now, I'm not sure if you caught all of that or not, but it really wasn't Paul's decision about whether he was going to be an apostle or not. It was the Lord who confronted Paul and knocked him to the ground on his way to Damascus. Paul wasn't in his study looking over his Isaiah scroll and eventually says, huh, you know what, maybe I should stop killing all these people who believe in Jesus. I really ought to stop doing that. Maybe he's the one that he actually says he is. No, Paul is not the one who comes up with this idea. The Lord has personally thrown him to the ground, told him to stop persecuting Jesus, given him scales on his eyes so he can't see, 
Then he convinces another guy, Ananias, to go deliver a message to this persecutor, Saul. He heals him, he gives him the Holy Spirit, and he sends him on his way to preach Christ. This was not Paul's decision. When the Lord speaks to Ananias in the vision in Acts 9.15, the Lord calls Paul a chosen instrument of mine. I mean, there's no mistaking it here. Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. It's not his own. It's not anyone else's. Our God is not subject to the persecution that natural man can dole out. He is not subject to those who shake their fists at God. He can frustrate the plans of sinful man. He can protect his people from danger. He can turn a persecutor of the church into an apostle who proclaims the name of Jesus Christ. Paul was not a Christian or an apostle by his own will. He did not choose to be an apostle, nor did he aspire to be one. Further, if you consider this, the church did not elect or call or affirm Paul by their own will to be an apostle. In fact, they were scared to death of him, that he would turn on them and continue his killing spree. Paul wasn't an apostle by his own will or by the will of the church. He was an apostle by the will of God. And Paul was not exactly like the other 11 disciples, right? Uh, He wasn't with Jesus during his earthly ministry. Paul didn't walk the same roads. Paul didn't see all the same miracles. He didn't hear all the sermons. But he did learn from the exact same Lord. In Galatians 1, Paul tells us that he did not learn the gospel from the church or from other apostles, or from any man for that matter, but rather from Jesus. Galatians 1.11 says this, For I would have you to know, brothers, that the gospel was preached by me. It's not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. Paul is not a sent one or apostle from the church. He is an authorized representative of Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus has revealed himself to Paul. He's trained him for three years, and he has sent him to do the work of an apostle to the Gentiles. The point for me and you today Paul is an authoritative, elect messenger of Christ. He was made a Christian and an apostle by the will and work of God. He was trained by Jesus Christ himself in Arabia, and as he says in Romans 1.5, he received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Praise God. Therefore, when Paul speaks on behalf of Jesus, Guys, we must listen. We don't have the right to take some of what Paul says and discard the other parts. 
He is given the task of proclaiming Christ to us, both in evangelism, for those that have not heard, but also in the ongoing process that we call discipleship. Christians being made mature in Jesus Christ. As we look at Paul, we glory in God's work of salvation, and we humbly prepare to receive the message that he is bringing to us. So that's the first part, that first statement, right? Paul, the sender to the Ephesians here. Now let's look at the second part. He says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Okay, there are a couple things we need to mention here at first that will help us. This is a good rendering of the original Greek phrase. It's accurate, it's fair, it flows smoothly, we understand it. But it may be a little bit confusing as to the specifics because we don't speak Koine Greek. It doesn't, it doesn't make it real apparent to us. What I mean is that if you are reading the Greek phrase, you would immediately see that there are two parallel adjectives that describe the same group of people. We know this because of the adjectives are being governed by the same article. Now, meaning that the word saints and the word faithful are both referring to the Ephesians who are in Christ Jesus, to these believers. You can probably see that for yourself as you work through it, but it's important to understand that Paul did this on purpose. He is calling those that are in Christ holy ones, or the ESV says saints. And he is calling them believing ones, or the ESV says faithful. Paul, in his assumptive opening greeting, is communicating that these people who are in Christ Jesus are holy and believing. Now, why do you make such a big deal about that, Chris? What's, what's holy and believing? Well, I, I make such a big deal about this because it shows that Paul recognizes that God has done this work in his people, and the people have responded to that work. Consider the terms for a moment. The church is holy. In other words, set apart to God. The designation is not a new one. This is not something he, Paul just came up with. Uh, you've heard it before. Exodus 19, 6, God says, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In Leviticus 19, 2, he says, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And it's not just Paul, one of the apostles that say this. Think about Peter in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. You know this. He says, But you are a chosen race, whew, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The church has been set apart by God for God. This is not the idea that... Um, Paul is writing to people uh, who the world designates as holy, right? We kind of think, oh, these are the, the holy ones over here. Now, we throw the, the phrase around like holier than thou uh, as though it means a person tries to act morally upstanding and as righteous as they can. And by using this phrase, of course, we mean it like that they're kind of maybe a hypocrite and they're trying to do that and that somehow we have the ability to judge who is and who isn't really holy, we understand that that's kind of, we throw that around, but uh, as we look at others who are humble and good and seem to be righteous, we, we call those not holier than thou people, but well, they seem pretty holy, pretty blameless and pure, and we would, would say they're holy. 
This is not the kind of thing that Paul is talking about. He's not talking about our assessment of a person that's seemingly very pious. Paul isn't saying that he has heard that the Ephesians have a really good reputation of being morally upstanding people. He is saying that these people have been set apart by God. Only God can set apart a people for himself. Only God can make people holy. Paul isn't like uh, sneaking in his theology here. He's assuming they're getting it already and that they've heard about this already. These people didn't choose themselves. They were chosen. They didn't make themselves alive. They were all sons of disobedience. But God, who is rich in mercy, has set his love on his people for his glory and their good. They were made holy by God himself. And this is who we are too. It is God who sets us apart. And we glory in his great work of predestination and adoption. But there's more. Whether one understands the ways of God and why and how and when he chooses to do all of this stuff, he can understand that he must respond in faith. We are not robots. It doesn't just happen to us that we all of a sudden believe and we didn't know what happened to us. In God's providence and glory, he elects and enlivens and gives faith. And we may not understand all of this, but we have experienced it as we respond to the gospel in faith. As we trust Jesus, we believe. We are those believing ones. Paul calls these people believing ones or trusting ones, or if I can put it just simply, faithing ones. They have not heard the gospel and rejected, but rather they have believed. They have received the word as true and have trusted Christ as Lord and Savior. Paul is sending this letter to set apart believing people who are in Christ. Christian, brothers and sisters, understand that your salvation is the work of an all-powerful God. We will see this even clear as we move forward into the book of Ephesians. I mean, it's, it's crystal clear. But for now, remember that it is God who has made his church holy and set it apart for himself. He deserves all the credit, all the glory, and every bit of our lives lived in a response of faith, a continued faith that trusts him. We are holy ones that must live according to what he has done, trusting him for our very existence and our daily walking on this earth before him. So that's the second part. That's the second phrase. The Ephesian Christians who are a chosen group and who have responded in faith. Now let's look at that last phrase in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we hear this, um, it sounds very Bible-y. Like, like we've heard these types of phrases before. Like, almost like we could do a similar thing if we were writing. We just grab two fruits of the Spirit, put them in there, and wish them for others as we greeted them in a letter, right? Something like, love and joy through our Lord Jesus Christ to all the saints at Cornerstone, or all the saints in Richmond, or all the saints in Washington. But that's not quite right. That's not exactly what's going on here. Paul isn't choosing arbitrary Christian traits that he wishes upon his recipients. He is building off a very common way of greeting people at the beginning of a letter in his day. 
In a normal letter of the day, a writer would use a phrase of greeting at the beginning, Kyrain. This would mean something like greetings or good health or good day to you, to the recipient. But Paul takes the language and the form of the day and changes it ever so slightly to have a deep theological importance. Instead of Kyrain, Paul says charis. You can kind of hear the similarity there. Charis means grace. It rings nicely there for them to understand that. But the significance is found in the fact that it's not just good health or greetings or something empty, but rather a prayer hope. Like he's almost praying it for them as he wishes this to be true for them, as he prays for them. And later on we'll see that it's not just a wish, but he prays to God that this would be true for them. A prayer hope sent from the author to the recipient based on the work of God himself. Paul says grace and peace. Now the addition of peace is important because if you think about this, it ties the author and the recipients to the ancient religion of the Jews. He is using the word peace, the idea of shalom, a very normal way of greeting another Jew before the God of Israel. Uh, And even in this greeting, Paul is speaking to both Jew and Gentile, showing their unity before God through the work of Jesus Christ. Paul is greeting his readers with grace and peace that only God can provide. And we will soon learn that grace is the cause and peace is the effect. The God of grace gives and transforms, and because of his action, he brings peace peace with God and the sinner, but then also between peace between fellow image bearers, whether of the same background or not, through Jesus. And so we find Paul greeting his readers with a prayer hope that is for their edification. It's for their growth. Yes, of course, it's a formal greeting. We get that. But Paul is showing that he desires that God would give grace and peace to his saints so that they might be built up a theme that we'll see continued throughout the book of Ephesians. So the third part is then showing us that Paul desires God to bless his people further and that the the content of this letter is for that purpose, for their building up. So all together then, from the beginning, right, we have the first part, Paul, the authoritative elect messenger. The second part, the Ephesians, the Christians who are a chosen group who have responded in faith. And then you have the third part, the message of edification for God's people. This is good stuff. This is good and right. And I think we've learned much. But we need to step back for a moment and see the whole all together and see if we've missed anything at all. Ephesians 1, 1 and 2, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as I was studying this week, it took me several days to recognize that there is one thing that is present in all three parts. Now, I'm not a very good detective. I understand that. Uh, I missed the thing that should have been apparent to me from the very beginning. The most important part of this greeting isn't way down deep in the details, but rather it has been right in front of us the whole time. Now, regretfully, I think I have grown familiar with the most important details. I have taken them for granted, like one that's not a detective. But I want to make sure that I recognize that significance regularly, starting today. Listen again as I bring out the one thing, or 
the one person who connects all three parts of Paul's greeting. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul can't help himself. Who is uh, Paul an apostle of in the first part? He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Who are the holy and believing ones? Who are they in? They are in Christ Jesus. Who is the grace and peace from that he's wishing and praying for them? It is grace and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it even more broadly in Paul's writings also. Who is the central character in all of Paul's writing? It's Jesus. Who created all things? Who holds all things together? Jesus Christ. Last week we saw that Paul is writing to the churches to help them understand that they play a central role in making known the manifest wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's Ephesians 3, verse 10. They show the unity now between Jews and Gentiles in salvation. But how? How is that happening? We learn in the next verse, verse 11, the eternal purpose of God was realized through Jesus Christ our Lord. As we wind our way through the book of Ephesians, we are going to see that Jesus Christ is at the center of this letter. He is everything to Paul, and therefore he is everything to the church. If Paul is an authoritative representative of Christ, we saw, and if the message is for us, elect believers who have responded in faith, and if it's for our building up our edification, and if Jesus really is at the center of everything, what are we to do then? I have, I have four things for you. The one is, we've already talked about this, but it will continue to be a regular rhythm for us that we have to hear to the praise of his glory. We must respond overwhelmed by his grace in praise to our God. It must be regularly, we must be overwhelmed by his goodness. And this will not happen beside the work of Jesus Christ in us. So, Christian, be reminded as a brother, together, praise your God. Read the truth, taste, eat, understand who he is, and praise him for his mighty works. Second thing, believe. Believe that in Christ, God's eternal purposes have come true. It's not made up. It's not a fairy tale. Believe that it's true. That may sound like a simple one, but it may take you a while to wrap your head around this and understand this. But as a brother in Christ, I come along to say, believe the true story of the world. The third thing, trust. Trust the one who has elected you, has spoken to you, has sustained you, holds you together, has given grace and peace to you, and who will continually do these things until he brings the whole church to mature manhood, until he makes us perfect in Christ. He will unite all things in this and the heavenly realm one day. So therefore, we can and must trust him. In the midst of all that's going on right now, the fact that I'm preaching to an empty place, we're all spread around. Fear is continually building between neighbors and governments and around the world. We have a sure and steady anchor, our Lord Jesus Christ. Trust him alone. The last thing, 
obey all that he has commanded us. We want to make one another more like Jesus Christ. We want to encourage obedience to his word. We want to continually be repenters and to trust the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has called us. He continues to work in us. And he will empower us to obey so that we might look more like Jesus Christ and proclaim him and demonstrate him to those who have not heard and those who are brothers and sisters who need to be reminded of this truth and called to repentance and faith and walk as Christians. So I'll say it again. Praise the Lord our God. Believe the true story of the world. Trust the one who has called us and sustains us and then obey him alone. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your great grace. We recognize that it was you from the beginning who has called your people. Lord, we realize even as Paul, before he was ever born, you set him to this purpose. Lord, we want to obey. Lord, we want to believe. We want to trust. We want to praise your holy name. Lord, it comes through Jesus Christ and our believing response must be to say, you are Lord and we want to obey you. Please help us, God. Give us the grace that we need to continue to obey and to love and to move forward. I pray your blessing on your people today as they go forth now, keep their family their neighbors. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.